Genesis chapter 3. I want to encourage you, as you turn there, if you really want to get more out of the sermon, listening intently will help. Notes will help. We send out in an email what I'm going to be preaching on on Friday. And I preach through sequentially through books, so even if you don't get an email, you pretty much know where I'm going to be. If you really want to get a lot out of the sermon, if you really want your heart changed, I would implore you to just read the text before you get here. Let it not be that the first time you hear this text that God is going to use on your heart be right now. Many nursery rhymes have meaning behind their words. Many of you probably know this. Baba black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir. Three bags full. One for my master and one for the dame. And one? Actually, no. The original was, and none for the little boy who lives down the lane. This was a denouncing nursery rhyme of feudal England where the nobles took some, the church took some, and there was usually none left for anybody else. How about Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling afterwards. Actually, a warning against committing adultery. The consequences of that sin. Some recount brutal periods of time like the Reformation. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? Sounds wonderful, right? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. This recounts the reign of Queen Mary I, Bloody Mary, who killed hundreds and hundreds of our brothers and sisters who were standing up for the gospel at that time. The silver bells and cockle shells, the wonderful little things, torture devices. And some tell scriptural truths. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. That's what we're studying today, the fall of man. See, man was... Created in a perfect environment. We looked at that last week, didn't we? And, and at the end of that, you look at chapter 2, the last verses, and they were naked and felt no shame. Perfect, sitting high, perfectly on the wall. But Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. As we'll see today, they, they took and they ate. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Death. The final curse. That's chapter 3 in a nutshell. And it all starts with the temptation. Look with me at verse 1. And now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. 
But God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Oh, you'll surely not die, the serpent said. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Here Satan uses the form of a snake. This is not unusual in scripture. We have it in Numbers chapter 22 where God speaks through what? A donkey, right? And he uses the form of a snake to tempt Eve into doubting God's goodness. He does this through a series of questions. I love how Nancy Guthrie has framed these three temptations she writes, the first one is believing that God's commands are randomly unreasonable. Randomly unreasonable. Did God really say? That's his first intro. Did God really say? Here Satan plants the suggestion or the idea that God is randomly unreasonable. Planting the idea that God, who gave such great freedom that even Eve acknowledges, that provides what's, what's not only pleasing for the eye, but also what is good for food, back in chapter uh, 2, actually asks things that are unreasonable of us. This is one of Satan's chief strategies in our life. He subtly whispers to you and to me, did God really say did, did God really say you should remain a virgin until you're married? Doesn't that seem a little bit unreasonable in today's society? Does that, what does that even have to do with the gospel? Did God really say that man is the spiritual head of the household? I mean, that doesn't jive with, with what culture is telling you. Did God really say, I'm supposed to forgive that person? A second, okay. Third, fourth, uh, fifth, sixth, seventh. Did God really say I should remain married even though I don't love this person anymore? Did God really say, I really need to be committed to a visible, local congregation of Jesus Christ? Does, does he really say that membership is necessary? I mean, can't I live my life outside the church? Am I not a Christian? That's unreasonable. It's one of Satan's most powerful temptations, and we listen to it all the time. And sometimes we take action on it. Did God really say? Isn't that unreasonable what he's asking of you? And Satan puts forth that God is not only unreasonable, but that he is ridiculously restrictive. Ridiculously restrictive. Look at verse 5, the second half of that. I'm sorry, verse 1. Did God really say you must not eat from any 
tree in the garden. I can't tell you how many times I've read this verse. And you probably are going to say, and he's pastoring us. I never saw it. He's actually questioning eating all the trees. He's he's saying, he restricted you from all the trees. Satan wants to present God as absolutely, ridiculously restrictive, doesn't he? Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Temptation writes about a little dialogue that goes on in our heads. It goes something like this. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted of me or expected of me now here in my particular situation? Can't I appease that desire? He concludes... Is, there, is, is it here that everything within me rises up against the word of God? It's those dialogues within our own minds and hearts that, that start, we start believing that God is ridiculously restrictive. Satan plays on our flesh that to live under God's rule is constrictive. If your heart is anything like mine, as I was preparing this, as I was preparing this, my heart was was chafing against that. Yeah, it is kind of restrictive. To live under God's authority is to go from freedom to bondage. Isn't that what we naturally feel? That when we give our life to Christ, or if we're talking to somebody about about what the gospel is and how they should give their life to Christ, that the dialogue that's going on in our mind is you're going from you can do anything you want to here's your little box that you have to live in for the rest of your life. That's how we think of it. You go from freedom into bondage. You hear this in the book, God is Not Great, by the atheist Christopher Hitchens. And he writes, I think it would be rather awful if it was true that God exists. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock, divine supervision and invisualization of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't watched, controlled, and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception till the moment of your death. He concludes, it would be like living in North Korea. That's how the world sees it. And that's how our flesh pulls us, isn't it? God is ridiculously restrictive. If you talk to most people, that is their view of becoming a Christian. Well, I guess i got to move to North Korea. Okay, and I'll be under that tyrannical dictator that will tell me how to live and what to do, what to say. We even see this here in Eve's amplification in, in verse 3, don't we? 
She gives that and not even touch it. She's beginning to believe this, isn't she? He is ridiculously restrictive. He told us we can't even touch it. He didn't say that. But that's a natural impulse of our flesh. Kent Hughes uses an illustration where he tells his daughter, his daughter has a, a playmate over and they get into some trouble and he says, well, your, your, your friend is going to have to go home. And she went running to the mother, crying, and said, Daddy says I can't have any more friends. <laughs> That's what happens. This is what we see from the very beginning. But the truth is really the opposite, isn't it? Chapter 2. Just flip back a page. You can eat from every tree. Every tree is pleasing. Look, at, look around. It's beautiful. You can eat from any tree except one. With God, you actually go from bondage to freedom. It's the exact opposite. He tells us over and over this, doesn't he? I mean, that's one of the themes of, of the book of John. In John eight thirty four. he says, I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You're in bondage. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed to freedom. You can look it up in Titus 3, 3, Romans chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. It's from slavery to freedom. That's the, that's the transition, that's the movement, that's the direction when you're sharing Christ with somebody. But Satan tempts us to believe the opposite. And when we begin thinking that, and when we, and we do... When we begin to buy into that, God is so restrictive. He can begin being more bold. That's what we see here. He said the next step, Satan just says a bold-faced lie, doesn't he? That's what... Look at verse 4. You will not surely die. You're not going to die. If you eat of the tree... You will surely die, he says. Satan picks up even the same kind of wording. You'll surely not die. That's when you know you're in trouble. When Satan can blatantly lie to you and you buy it. You know you're in trouble. You see this happening in our culture. Our culture has bought the lie. Satan absolutely does not have to be cunning anymore where homosexuality is concerned, does he? Now homosexuality is, is right, it's good, and it's even a noble way to live your life. I mean, that goes contrary to all the scriptures. He doesn't have to lie anymore. Surely you won't die. Satan doesn't have to be crafty or cunning or or. or, or interesting in how he frames abortion anymore, does he? 
I was I was sent to YouTube last week by uh I think it was one of my parents, I'm not sure. But it was a YouTube on uh, uh Martha Plimpton. She was one of the girls that played one of the characters in in The Goonies years ago. And she was in Seattle at a Planned Parenthood conference. And she said this. Seattle holds a dear place in my heart because it is here that I had my first abortion. And the crowd goes crazy, cheering. And then she said, and it was my best one. And the crowd cheers even louder. We've gotten to the point where Satan can just say, surely you're not going to die. And we go, yeah, that's right. We're not going to die. Just like Eve. What blatant lie of Satan do you believe? Because they're in all of our lives. You just need help identifying it because we're usually blind to it. Perhaps it's that looking at pornography isn't just... It's not that bad. It's pretty normal. It's pretty mainstream. All the guys I know do it. When it actually is death itself. Perhaps it's that you should not have any more authority over you. That's, that's the great lie that Americans believe en masse. No elders... No church authority in my life. Where in, the te- where in the New Testament do you ever see anybody living outside the community of God? As a believer, you don't. You know who you see living outside the community of God? Those who have left the community. Those who have renounced the faith. Now, being under authority is good and proper. It's how we're created to live. But that's not Satan's last word to Eve, is it? Look at verse 5. You can be like God. You can be like God. You can have your own authority. You can determine what's right and wrong. You can determine for yourself what's good and evil. God is so unreasonable, so restrictive, he's so wrong. And that's when Eve reaches out and takes and eats. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate it. At that moment, Humpty Dumpty fell. The fall. Kent Hughes says they had fallen from the pinnacle of innocence and intimacy into the pit of guilt and estrangement. But look at how sublime the sin is there in in verse 6. How subtle it is. She took, she ate. How simple. Yet the whole train wreck of history can be traced back to that one simple, sublime 
seemingly innocent thing. I'm just going to take a nibble. Not that big. That's how it is when you give in to sin. It's always like a nothing at the time. It's always like a nothing at the time, guys. It's always a nibble. Whether you're just passing on to somebody what you've heard about another person, just doing that. No harm, no foul. Or harboring bitterness, but smiling on the outside, but harboring bitterness towards somebody. Or deeply desiring what somebody else has. Whether it be stuff or a relationship. All of these seem so little at the time. So nothing. Just a nibble. But those nibbles separate you from God. Why isn't Ephesus a great and mighty town city today. It was in the New Testament time. It was the gateway to the Far East. That's where that the harbor was bustling. They had, they had gymnasiums. They had a huge amphitheater. I've sat there. They had, they had religion. They had the, the, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana there. People came and saw. What happened? It had to be some huge invasion, right? Or some devastating earthquake or, or a plague that just, just decimated the city. No. It was much more subtle and silent than that. It was little grains of dirt. See, Ephesus is on the mouth of the Castor River. And over time, those little pieces of dirt would come down the river and fall to the bottom of the harbor. And over time, those little pieces of dirt started moving the harbor further and further away. When I was there 20 years ago, it was about a mile away. I mean, the the, the port structure was a mile from the Mediterranean. And that's what sin does. It slowly, silently separates you from God. Seems like such nothing, right? It's just a little piece of dirt. It's just a click of a mouse. It's just one passing on of what I know about another person. It's just a turn of a shoulder. It's just a thought. It's just a nibble of fruit that separates you from life, which is God. And that's what we see right off in chapter, in verse 7 we see the consequences of sin. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave some fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree for which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Your painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles from you, from you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. The consequences of sin, the consequences of the fall, is that once what was natural now becomes a struggle. What was natural becomes a struggle. And the first way we see that is through the struggle of relationships. First, the relationship with God. In an instant, we go from desiring the gaze of God to hiding from it. In an instant, they go from his gaze being an encouragement, looking to to their heavenly Father for the encouragement to judgment. We see right off in the narrative in verse 8, they hid from God. We see the guilt, immediate guilt. And that's what we've been doing ever since, is hiding from God. I said last week that our natural inclination is not to run towards God. No one seeks God. Romans chapter 3, right? We run away from God. Even in our redeemed state, don't we? We don't always run to God. We should. I mean, I'm reminded of of when we do confession out loud here. That is a time to run to God in repentance, seeking forgiveness. And we're more concerned about what my brothers and sisters will think of me than what God is. We struggle with the relationship with God. We struggle with the relationships with each other. This is what we see in the blame that's going on there. I am so proud of you that you did not laugh when we read that. Because it's a tragedy. We see the complementary nature that they were born into. 
this woman helping the man, the man leading the woman, this perfect symbiotic relationship actually shattered. Adam blames Eve. He goes from the delight in chapter 2 of, I found the one, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, to she did it. She, it's not my fault. No, now the marital relationship will now be filled with struggle. The woman will be tempted to control the relationship and usurp the man's headship and blame him when their relationship is not good. And the man's temptation is either to back off and be totally passive or to be tyrannical. Passive like Adam was in verse 6. I hope you saw that. I hope I read that well enough for you that you saw that Adam was there. He wasn't off in the hut and she ran back to him. He was standing right there and he should have intervened. He said, no dirt on me. Or there'll be a temptation to be tyrannical, oppressive, Dominant, cruelly controlling. I like how Nancy Guthrie explains it in her commentary. She says, Eve was made to be her husband's companion and helper. But now she will fight against the desire to dictate to him and dominate him. Rather than to look to her husband for guidance, she'll seek to manipulate. And the man, she says, rather than gently guiding and guarding her, he will lord it over her and exploit her rather than the unfettered, one-flesh intimacy that they knew, the relationship will be riddled with self-centered strife. Struggle in relationships, struggle in the blessings that God has given us. For the woman, the blessing of being fruitful and filling the earth, being fruitful and, and... and being part of that beautiful blessing of filling the earth, now that blessing will be filled with pain. Pain in childbirth. Again, Guthrie nails it here. She says, the aspect of Eve's life that were intended to bring the greatest measure of pleasure in her life will now be invaded with pain. Not merely the physical pain of labor, although that is true, but in delivery, but the pain of infertility, of miscarriages, of birth defects, of learning disabilities. It's filled with pain. For the man, the blessing of purpose, purposeful work, fulfilling work, is cursed. The ground is cursed because of you. Painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Work becomes painful. Work becomes wearisome. Work becomes tiresome. I don't want to work. We long. I mean, America, we have placed that at such a value that we work our whole life to not work. That's not right. 
Not only do we struggle with relationships and blessing, we struggle with death. Verse 19 tells us that now instead of life, there will be death. Yes, physical death. You know, many of us wonder, my goodness, why does God put those genealogies in here? I mean, just skip over them. I encourage you to read them out loud. Read chapter 5 out loud today. Chapter 5 is genealogy. And the thing that we're always drawn to is what? Wow. They lived a long time. 800, 900 years. Methuselah, you know, we teach our kids in Sunday school. Methuselah, the oldest man ever living, 969 years. Do you know what that is meant to show us? Not how long they lived, but the refrain after each person's long life is, and they died. We struggle with death. Even Methuselah is going to die. Physical death is just a symptom of our spiritual death. Physical death, and I teach this in our introductory class in membership, that it's like, it's like the runny nose when you have a cold. You have the virus inside you. The runny nose is what you see. We see the physical death, but it's a symptom of a virus that kills us, which is spiritual death. Misothenia gravis is a disease in which the muscles cannot respond to the signals being sent by the brain and therefore the muscles wither away. Normally the brain sends electrical signals along nerves and is received by something called the motor end plate. A person with misothenia gravis, the end plate is missing. Thus the signals sent by the brain but the muscle can never receive it. That's exactly what happened spiritually at the fall. The human spirit wasn't meant to receive the spiritual signals from God, but our end plate is gone. And so we wither and we die. Because of Adam's sin, we are spiritually dead. We can't receive the life-giving spirit of God. Not just blind or lost. Those are perfectly fine biblical categories. But I encourage you, think of it as you're dead before. Your family and your friends who don't know Christ are, are spiritually dead. They're not lost or just blind. I'm sure that's what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Ephesian church. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Or what we read today in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all men. Why? Because men, all men sin. Warren Wearsby says, Genesis begins in a garden and ends in a coffin. What a commentary on sin in the world. 
And Yahweh would have been perfectly, perfectly just to leave us there. You realize that? He would still be a good God if he said, okay, I'll start over. But he didn't. Look at verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Here we see the grace of God. What is amazing to me is that God did not need a cooling off period. If you have a fight with a friend or your spouse or your children, just going to go upstairs and cool off for a while and then I'll be level-headed. God didn't need that. Did you realize that? What they did to him? They spit in his face, and he instantly goes into grace mode. Immediately, we see he clothes them in their shame. God himself clothes them. What a loving thing to do. They were feeling guilt and shame, and he goes, let me help you with that. Here we see God gracefully putting the tree of life out of their reach. You know, we always say, God, just banish them from the garden. I'm angry. Get out. No. If you have a careful reading of the text, you see that he's protecting them from reaching out, taking from the tree of life and eating, and remaining in their fallen position forever. I don't want them to do that. I have a plan. And we see that plan even before he clothes them, even before he banishes them, don't we? Perhaps the most graceful thing we see is that we see that plan of God. Even in the midst of judgment, the loss of paradise and perfection, the loss of relational parity, the loss of acceptance, the loss of his presence, in the midst of the reality of the loss of life, a promise promise of grace. Look at verse 15. He said, they're right in the middle and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. Here is the vague but broad foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Both he and the effects of Satan's deception will be crushed. That there will come one, someone from woman, someone from woman, that will restore everything that has just been lost. That there will come, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, a second Adam. See, Adam was just the foreshadow of a greater Adam to come. And this Adam will not passively stand by, but will step into history, step into flesh, who will not succumb to temptation, 
but resist all temptation and live a perfect life. Hebrews 4.15, so that you and I don't have to. Who will not be tested in a garden? He'll be, he'll be put into an even greater crucible in the desert. Who will not bristle under authority, but who will say again and again, to do the Father's will is my bread. I came to do my Father's will. Who will not point a finger away from himself in blame, like Adam did, but will point to himself and say, I will take your blame. Put your blame on my shoulders. Who will not be clothed graciously by God, but will hang naked on a tree. Who will not eat of the tree, but hang on one. Who will not usher in death, but life. He said in John 5, I will tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. One of the great images that God says, Jesus says about himself is he says, I am the gate. You want back into the garden? Come through me. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, use it to change our hearts, spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.